This is Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. Continuing a trend, another slew of Native chefs and restaurants have been nominated for a prestigious National Culinary Award. A bowl of soup contains more than savory and hearty flavors. Soup carries memories and cultural identities of our Native communities. And a sharp knife is a necessary kitchen tool that will take care of you if you take care of it. Award nominations, soup and sharp knives are on the menu. Our regular Indigenous food feature, we're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Farmers, landowners, and local government agencies are coming together Wednesday on the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation in Colorado for the latest listening session on a plan to protect and manage the Mancus River. KSJD's Chris Clements reports. The group behind the plan is made up of municipalities and organizations that lie along the river, like Mesa Verde National Park, the Mancus Conservation District, and the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe. The listening session is intended for tribal members and ag producers who rely on the river to give feedback on a new watershed stream management plan. Sensa Wolcott is the watershed coordinator for the Conservation District. There are certain times and certain spots where the river does dry up, um, especially obviously in drought years. And that is really hard on irrigators. And it's really detrimental to the ecology and the the riparian aquatic animals as well. You know, like fish can't move. Wolcott says the first draft of the plan will likely be finished by late February. It'll serve as a guide for communities to better use and conserve water resources and could include voluntary or compensated changes to irrigation rules during drier years. More outreach sessions will take place starting this summer for feedback on the first draft. The finalized plan isn't expected until 2025. I'm Chris Clements. After a nearly four-year hiatus, Oregon Governor Tina Kotek has revived a task force dedicated to taking stock of Native American items in state and public collections. KLCC's Brian Bull has more. Then-Governor Kate Brown established the Task Force on Oregon Tribal Cultural Items in 2017. Its 16 members were from all nine federally recognized tribes within Oregon, as well as government, university, and law enforcement officials. But their operations were paused in 2020 as the COVID-19 pandemic spread. Jesse Beers is the Cultural Stewardship Manager for the Confederated Tribes of Coos, Laura Umpqua, and Siosla Indians, and was with the original task force. I really want to convey how happy I am that this is being reconvened because it was an important task force. There's items that the state may hold that the tribes aren't aware of, and there's knowledge that tribes have that the state is unaware of. So it's a way of building relationships. Oregon became the first state to share survey findings on tribal items in 2019. For National Native News, I'm Brian Bull. A signing ceremony between two tribal colleges to help address teacher shortages in Indian country was held this week in Macy, Nebraska, at the Nebraska Indian Community College. The college signed an agreement with Haskell Indian Nations University, which is located in Lawrence, Kansas, to increase opportunities for students who earn an associate degree in teacher preparation at the Nebraska College to transfer to Haskell for a bachelor's degree in elementary education. Christine Sedbeck, Nebraska Indian Community College Academic Dean, expressed her gratitude for the partnership, saying it will help their students reach goals of becoming teachers. I'm trying to serve the, the needs of our students 
where they are at, and really trying to promote that growth of more Native teachers that will stay in the groups because they're invested. Cameron Reynolds, vice chairman of the Santee Sioux Nation, attended the signing event and talked about why representation matters. He says it's important that young students see Native teachers who can help inspire them as they become future leaders in tribal communities. We talk about that all the time, you know, about our kids running our tribe, our kids being professionals. The effort between the two tribal colleges is to create a pathway for graduates to become certified teachers in elementary school settings. The agreement goes into effect this summer. Nebraska Indian Community College offers students certificates and associate degrees at three campuses in Nebraska and is working to offer its first baccalaureate program. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, LLP, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for over 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Support by Drummond Woodsum a full-service law firm whose nationally recognized tribal nations practice provides services to tribal nations and their enterprises and to companies that do business with tribes across the country. More at dwmlaw.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is the menu on Native America Calling, our special feature on indigenous food and food sovereignty. I'm your host and resident foodie here, Andy Murphy. Four Native chefs and food entrepreneurs are among those on a list of James Beard Award 2024 nominees that was just announced. These are the Oscars of the food world, and it's an honor that Native people are getting noticed for more every year. It's also soup season. Just about every tribe has a traditional soup or their own soup style. And those steamy hot bowls tell a lot about a community's identity. On top of that, soup is full of comfort and warm memories of home. But first... A good, sharp knife is almost always at the start of any soup, award, or anything else in the kitchen. A good knife can last a long time if you treat it right. First up on the menu, I'm talking with kitchen creative Nikki Sabitze about the importance of sharp knives. You can join us too. Does your kitchen knife have a lot of sentimental value? Tell us about it. Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Uh, Nikki is joining us in the studio here in Albuquerque, and uh, she is from Zuni. Welcome to the menu, Nikki. Hi. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> Thanks for joining. Uh, so I, I just mentioned you, um, uh, I just mentioned knife sharpening mm -hmm. in the intro there. And I uh, want to ask you, why is a sharp kitchen knife important? Um, first and foremost, like safety is, um, you know, the key point there with a sharp knife. Um, it's actually sh safer for you than a dull knife. That way you're not putting excess effort into it and, 
in case you slip, then you're not hurting yourself. Um, secondary, I think it's just like an extension of being, um, you know, like it helps you achieve all the things that you need to do. So like you were saying before, if you take care of it, it'll take care of you. Great. And that uh, knife sharpening audio we just mm-hmm. played in the intro is you actually sharpening yeah. <laughs> my knife in here in the studio the other day. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about that process of sharpening a knife. It took it took a little while. Yeah. Um, so the process that I do, I do everything by hand. Um, I think like that's just the way. Not only I was taught, but um, certain types of knives require that versus like being run through a machine. Um, So with the process that I did for your knives in particular, we um, didn't go to the coarsest uh, grit that I have, which would be like a 200 grit. Um, We went like one step above that. And so with that stone, um, I used a little bit of like the oil um, and then the other three stone, well, actually two stones um, require water, which would be a wet stone. Um, so some of that, um, you know, process actually takes a lot of preparation and, um, beforehand in terms of time. Um, so with the wet stones, I typically soak them at least 24 hours before I start any knife sharpening. So I try to, you know, get an idea of how many knives, um, that I'm going to do for a session, um, soak the knives, or sorry, soak the stones, um, and then prep the knives, uh, accordingly based upon like, you know, the, um, dullness that way uh i can kind of be a little strategic with my time and spend um spend it wisely yeah right and um you know so so i had these knives for a very long time they yeah. were uh these are the first uh chef knives i've uh ever um, I've ever had. They were like a hand-me-down from my mom, and I think that's how uh, a lot of us, especially younger people, mm-hmm. uh, put together our kitchens. They're uh, hand-me-downs yep. from our parents and our grandparents. And um, these knives, they just uh, took me through uh, the last uh, semesters, last years of yeah. college, and just beginning to really start learning mm-hmm. how to cook and 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 how to use a knife so they they came to this point where they were dull and I was just like (laughs) you know I bought another one a couple years ago that Mm -hmm. was the same type same brand same size and you know it it just wasn't really doing the job like it it was a long time ago so um I came across your uh your poster (laughs) on social media and uh I told you this story about Uh you know my having it in the family and it's mine now and I don't want to give it up I just don't want to buy another one how how you know, sentimental value. You handle a lot of knives. Do people also come with a lot of their uh, stories connected to their knives? Absolutely. So um, that's actually one of my favorite things that I like to do um, as I sharpen knives or like, you know, just kind of touch base with the owners and like, you know, what they do with their knives, why it's important to them. Um, I'm, I'm a very sentimental person. Um, so like what you just expressed in having something passed on to you through the generations is like very important to me. Um, and some of the knives that we have in our home, they're, they're, you know, they've been there for quite some time. Um, and they just need some love, some TLC to bring them back to life again. 
And I think that when you recognize something like that within your own home and how much it can, you know, aid you in the process of what you were mentioning earlier, like with the soup, it, it brings you comfort. It, get, it brings you a sense of, um, I think, accomplishment, too, um, especially when you're like maybe a little timid in the kitchen and you're not quite sure and you start, you know, like building your bones there. And those are the tools that help get you to where you need to go. And it's a very personal journey. Um, and I think it's kind of intimate when people uh, share those stories with me because, like, you know, if they open up about themselves and you can um, kind of see a different side of their personality, too, because uh, <laughs> sometimes you hear about stories that maybe they haven't told anybody else. Like, you know, maybe there was a little mishap or something along the way. And it's, it's like, wait, you never told me that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's the I don't know. That's the fun in it. Um, I just r- really enjoy food. And um, yeah, like you were saying, knives are a really great place to start um, if you're just kind of curious where <laughs> where my passion came from. Yeah. Uh, So uh, offering your knife sharpening um, services uh, to me is one thing, but then you also offer these services to uh, your community in Mm -hmm. Zuni, which is very far (laughs) from Albuquerque. Yeah. Uh, Why why go all the way to Albuquerque, all the way to Zuni from Albuquerque to uh, bring that to your community? Oh, I love that question. Um, so being in Zuni, we're definitely like a food desert. Um, and we have to travel, um, you know, like at least 40 miles to get to like the largest chains and stuff like that. So uh, we as a family business try our best to, you know, make as much things accessible as possible to our community. Um, but I think as far as like knife sharpening goes, I just, you know, I I just kept doing it for my immediate family and I was kind of getting to a point to where it was like, maybe I should like offer this service to other people and see if they take interest in it. There's quite a few hunters in Zuni. Um, There's also just, I think, like a lot of people that cook at home and um, like just having maybe take a little bit of like the stress out of out of that process um is something that I wanted to do um and then also just I think wanting to connect with more people from home um I didn't go to the public schools there um I went to these um kind of like I guess smaller schools uh, within Zuni so or in on the outside of um the reservation area. So when I moved to Albuquerque uh, I, in 2013, I've constantly been driving back and forth. I mean, even beyond that. You know. <laughs> mm-hmm. and so I think I logged in a lot of miles between Albuquerque and Zuni. And um, I owe a lot of my food experience, early food experiences to Albuquerque um, because I personally haven't traveled a lot uh, out of state for pleasure or, you know, if I did, it was more for like school or business and, um, very quick. So I just think that it's, it's something that maybe not everyone has access to, or maybe not even consider. Um, and it's also just something like, um, being ecological 
in the sense of like your your purchases and and how you take care of your tools. Um, I mean, there's quite a few people who cut wood in Zuni like during the winter time and they upkeep their chainsaw chains. Mm-hmm. So I just see it as an extension of that too. You know, like different types of knives and blades for different tasks and. You know, something like cooking, it's always going to be a year-round thing, especially in our community. So um, that just made sense to me. And then um, when I'm home, like, most of my family is at our grocery store. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I just, I end up there most of the time when I'm visiting home. And I just thought it would be nice to set up my stones and um, a more open surrounding so people can kind of walk up and see what I'm doing if they're curious enough or at least my family can see what I'm doing <laughs> mm-hmm. and I'm not like just holed up in, in the house and with my knives <laughs> all the time yeah. like I'm out in an open area trying to connect yeah yeah, yeah that's pretty cool Thank you. Um, I want to talk a little bit about safety uh, mm-hmm. because these knives after you're done with them are really really sharp <laughs> I mean they're like yeah. totally sharp I, I uh, found myself cutting through you know tough uh, you know hard carrots yeah really easily and some like sinewy sort of meat like really uh-huh. easily like butter um, and, and we'll get to that just right after the break but uh, folks listening out there you can join us too. tell us about your kitchen knife where did you get it from who did you inherit it from how long has it been in the family we're at 1-800-996-2848 that's also 1-800-99-NATIVE and just coming up we will talk to uh, Blue Adams about this year's James Beard Award nominees and then we'll go over to uh, Joe in Philadelphia to talk about soup Writer N. Scott Mamaday was a giant in the literature world and served as an inspiration for Native writers. Obituaries for the Kiowa writer credit his novel Housemaid of Dawn as the starting point for contemporary Native American literature. We'll remember N. Scott Mamaday with words from family, friends, and artists who knew him and his work. That's on the next Native America Calling. Support by the American Indian College Fund. The American Indian College Fund provides millions of dollars of scholarships to thousands of Native students every year. Tribal citizens of every age and experience are eligible. The deadline for applications is May 31st, and you can find everything you need to apply at collegefund.org. That's collegefund.org, or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Education is the answer. You are listening to The Menu on Native America Calling, our regular feature on indigenous food. I'm Andy Murphy, and uh, we're talking with Nikki Slabitze today. She is a kitchen creative, and she's Zuni. Um, We're talking about sharp knives, and uh, a little bit later we'll be talking about this year's James Beard Award nominees who are from Native America. You can join us, too. Is there anything uh, food-related? 
related happening in your native community? Um, any uh, tribal food sovereignty initiatives you want to talk about? We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Uh, Nikki, just before the break, I mentioned uh, safety. Uh, what are some rules we should keep in mind uh, about safety when we're handling knives? Um, that's a great question. I like to, uh, even in my own home, <laughs> and I, and even my parents and other um, family members know this, uh, will like say like sharp, like behind you. Like just as you would in a commercial kitchen, um, announcing yourself and then pointing the knife down towards the floor as you're walking around instead of like forward in case like you turn around or anything like that. Um, you won't hurt anybody. Um, when I'm working at my cutting board, I like to place the knife like uh, like away from from me, um, facing the wall, and then that way when you're like wiping up your cutting board or anything, you don't accidentally cut yourself. Um, and then I guess three, like just kind of, uh, I think the best way to store my knives, if I don't have like a, like a butcher's block or anything like that is just putting them in a drawer, um, similar style, like, um, the edge away from you. That way when you're opening up your drawer, they're not like flying around. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, when you're washing them, like, I like to, like, not let go of the knife and then just, you know, just, like, give it a quick uh, wipe down with some uh, detergent, quick rinse, and then wipe it down immediately. If it's, like, a high-carbon steel knife, um, you want to do that just so that the rust doesn't um, start building up. And then it's just a good practice, too. That way you're not leaving knives in the sink, and then it could potentially cut someone, if not yourself, (laughs) if you forget about it. Mm -hmm. but those are, I think, just some, like, really basic ones. Like, if you're uh, someone, like, kind of like my mom who tends to use kitchen knives for different house tasks, don't do that. <laughs> like, just get a scraper. Just pick up a scraper at Home Depot or, you yeah. know, like, don't, don't be using your knives for tasks that they're not meant for. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah the, for for uh, sewers out there, you know, uh-huh. you wouldn't use your your good fabric knives to yes. be cutting open a dog food bag or exactly. something like that. <laughs> exactly. And just like you, like your kitchen shears, like you wouldn't want to use that on fabric or anything like that mm-hmm. either. So I, I think like it's kind of within that same Venn diagram of thinking of just like, well, you wouldn't do that with that. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, All right. And uh, (laughs) what are some things people can do to keep their knives sharp and keep them in good shape? I mean, it seems like there are so many gadgets out there. Right. Um, Honestly, like, so when I'm I'm at a friend's house and they have an incredibly dull knife, (laughs) I will always ask if they have like a ceramic bowl or a plate. Um, I'll flip that upside down, and it's usually, like, the little ring on the bottom. It's uh, unglazed, so you can, like, kind of give that a couple swipes through, like, as if you were using a whetstone. Um, it's helped me in a pinch. It'll make the bottom of your bowl dirty, but it's it's fine. It, it can be washed. Um, but they have, like, these, like, little um, kind of, like, pocket tools, I suppose. Some of them are hit or miss, um, I personally have one from Smith & Wesson, which is kind of really cool. Um, it's just a small thing. Like, it looks like a V shape. 
uh, with like a like a sharpening blade, and then there's like a, also another side where you can run it through to kind of clean up the blade. Mm. Um, I I've run into chefs who have told me never to use that in their kitchen, <laughs> mm-hmm. just because you know it, it it's not the best for the knife. But I think if you're a beginner, it's a good place to start. Um, but if you're really interested in like um, sharpening your knives by hand. They do offer like these little um, like guides that you can snap on the back of your knife. So it creates this little wedge. Um, so with certain knives, you kind of want to keep between a degree, I would say between like maybe 10 to 15 degrees, um, depending on how, you know, the knife is shaped. But with that guard in place, it can help you build the muscle memory for the angle that you need for those knives. Um, You can find them like at a standard restaurant supply uh, here in town. Um, I know Mercer Meister has a couple of them on like their online site. It's relatively expensive, like maybe 10 bucks, but it's, yeah, it's just kind of a really great place to start. Um, That way you, you know, don't hurt yourself. um, And then you don't like harm the knife or the stone that you're working on. Um, But honestly, like, it's just going to be some practice. Like you're going to have to kind of get a little over that fear of like cutting yourself. Cause you, you're going to cut yourself. That's just, the, <laughs> that, that's just the, that's just the end of it is like, I think with anything, uh, as long as you're careful, taking things slow, um, just getting, getting the motions down first, you'll be fine. All right. Well, thank you so much, Nikki, mm-hmm. for that information uh, about sharp knives. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> I want to uh, bring in Blue Adams. She's the director of Indigihub and a committee member of the James Beard Foundation. She's Dana Mandan and Hadatsa. Welcome back to the menu, Blue. Hi. Thank you for having me back. So it, it seems like more Native people are showing up in the James Beard uh, Awards as, as nominees, and we had a couple of really cool uh, award winners in the last couple of years. Is this a trend? Are there more Native chefs and restaurants uh, being recognized in this uh, arena? Um, I don't want to call it a trend. I think it's more of indigenous chefs and foodpreneurs gaining access. And what I mean is um, I was just looking back through my notes and we didn't even have a Native American category on open table until 2016. What's open table? But we were there. So open table is a reservation system for restaurants. So if we were like, say, Yelp or... um, you know, these different sites where you could go. Google um, has a place where it says, like, what kind of restaurant are you? We never had a Native American category. So when we were operating Black Sheep Cafe, that's one of the things we really pushed for and were able to get open table to add that category. Otherwise, we had to choose Mexican or maybe American So to come from 2016, not even having a Native American restaurant category on these social platforms, to having four nominations for Indigenous chefs um, and concepts, 
is amazing. And it just shows how much more work we need because we'd already been operating in these spaces. There, there are so many amazing uh, chefs and food concepts that have been operating now in 2024 to have these four nominations and to have that support and the spotlight on incredible individuals in this industry that's more than i could you know i want to hope for more i want more 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 <laughs> all right so um this this kind of recognition just a nomination uh for this prestigious award i mean what, what does it mean for a chef for a restaurant to be nominated for a james beard award it could be a, it really can be life changing um of course you you're going to get busier uh so be prepared <laughs> but also all the things that you know the commonality with the native chefs that were uh chosen this year as nominees is their commitment to sustainable practices, not just with the food and the food they're providing to their community, but also within the restaurant space, making sure they're, you know, uh, paying fair wages, et cetera. These are things that the James Beard Foundation looks for when they're choosing these nominees, <clears throat> but also the advocacy around uh, traditional food, traditional food systems. Looking at a lot of these concepts and a lot of these chefs, they're bringing foods that they have uh, grown up on, that they have shared in their communities, maybe recipes from their mothers, grandmothers, fathers, uncles, etc. So it, it's creating conversation about what is Native American or Indigenous food, and how, you know, how what contributions have we had to the culinary scene since time immemorial. I think those are really uh, important conversations because many cuisines throughout the globe have been influenced by indigenous foods. All right. So let's hear from some of the Native nominees who have been on the menu in the past year. Uh, after Jackie Siegfried opened her restaurant, Native, she joined me on the menu and I asked her about her motivation for focusing on Native food. So I feel like food is like a great way to educate people. I feel like that's something that the Native community is lacking from the outside world. Like they just don't know that we have this amazing food, that we have this very enriched culture because they're not exposed to it. Like, I've had so many people like, yeah, like Thanksgiving food. And I'm like, not like Thanksgiving food, but we do have turkey. So you kind of are right, but they just don't know. So I was like, if I can bring some education and bring those flavors that we had before colonization, and even past colonization, and be able to fuse them together and make it to where people are open-minded to tasting something new that they've never had, then they'll ask questions about it. And then that's an opportunity that we can educate somebody and then they kind of know a little bit more and they're more empathetic to other people and other religions and other cultures. So that's kind of what I want to do with Native. Later, I had Chef Bryce Stevenson. He's Redcliffe Ojibwe. Uh, I had him on after he opened Mijim in La Pointe, Wisconsin. He had been thinking about opening a restaurant for a long time. The concept, the idea of what we are currently doing, it popped in my mind as soon as I, I started in the food industry. It was just something that just made sense and clicked in my mind of being where I'm from. 
uh, studying in, in, you know, indigenous history in school and then working in the food industry. It's just, it just all came together. And, you know, so it's, it's been a dream, my life stream, I guess, if you will, uh, since then. And I have been everything that I've been doing from that moment till now has just been, you know, those little baby steps you have to take to, you know, you need the, the right experience, the right knowledge, the right place, the right time, you know, all of those things. And, uh, heavily affected by COVID and, you know, when when COVID hit, it, I mean, it literally put me on the couch for a long time. Um, and, and then in my mind, it, it put me in the same place and it was really hard to get out of that. And I think returning home is what I needed. And, and if I, I always knew that I, whatever I opened up, whatever I did, I, it had to be back home. It had to be something for my family, my community, the, you know, this, this area that I, have huge massive connection with I, I had to bring something back that I I could share with them and you know give them something Bowenero Brewing Company was nominated for Outstanding Bar. It's a local establishment, and I run into the owners every now and then. They are Shyla Shepard, who is Mandan Hidatsa Narikara, and Missy Begay, who is Diné. They are, were guests on my podcast a few years ago, and I thought I'd bring up this segment of audio. Here I asked them what the best part of running a brewery is. Inspiration. That's always a fun, a fun thing. You know, sometimes it starts with kind of like the book of names where like names come, but there has to be a beer at some point that feels like it's the right fit. But also with certain ingredients, we'll be like, oh man, we really want to use that, but we're waiting for the, that right beer fit for it. We also just have a really solid, fun group of people, like super creative. I mean, I think most people would say like drinking the beer, right? But it is totally not that. So I'm primarily like the creative director side of things. So I feel like I get to just do all the fun things, be creative. Coming to the brewery and seeing like just everything that like we've been able to create, like having a like physical space and just seeing like the progress I think is like super exciting on a day-to-day basis. There's a really good vibe here. And I, the people who work in beer are generally like awesome people, like really easygoing. They're really fun to be around. And we always just try to have like a really positive outlook on things. And in Maine, Joe Robbins was nominated for an Emerging Chef Award. He's enrolled at the Penobscot Nation, and he is the executive chef at Bissell Brothers Three Rivers Brewing in Milo. I caught up with him yesterday, and here's what he had to say about the trajectory of Native cuisine in the mainstream. Every bit of American cuisine was taken from somewhere, I think, not just with the Beard Awards, but with culinary, like food scene, food media in general is, is pushing the, and kind of trace like where all these foods came from and defining what American food or new American food or traditional American food is, has been like a big question for people for a very long time. Uh, Sean obviously essentially walked so a lot of us could run with that. So I think it's a, a big thing that's needed to happen for some time. My grandparents or my parents certainly didn't have a whole lot of idea of what our traditional foodways were. I mean, I grew up fishing on the river and, you know, picking fiddleheads on the river and doing some more traditional things, but not in any scale like it is today where we know so much more about foraging and where, you know, tribes are sharing this information versus just keeping it to themselves. Obviously, you know, social media, the internet has really helped that and put a lot of gasoline on that fire. And I think something like the Beard Award where our food 
I think was always viewed as something you ate at a powwow or a fair or you know, street food. And I see a lot of this in, in Asian food as well, that uh, a certain dish may be out there and it may be thought of in a certain way. But then when you kind of bring it to this really top tier level, like the, like a James Beard Award or a Michelin star or any of those things, it uh, it gives it this newfound respect. And that's when writers and, and people start really spreading that information, which is probably the most important part of the whole process to me. That was uh, some audio from the the four uh, nomination nominees uh, for this year. Uh, Blue, is there anything that kind of uh, uh, strikes you in particularly from what you heard from the the nominees so far? I I mean, it's just so amazing to hear how much work is being done in the community, and then the recognition of. Uh, the James Beard being a ally in all of this. I mean, from the uh, food fund that they created where they gave uh, applicants $15,000 as seed or to continue their concepts or improve on their concepts and to, to see it like what I want to see is more leveling of the playing field. I always go back to a saying that I, I just... You know, it, it, it's a driver for me where there is so much talent locked in poverty. And for organizations like the James Beard Foundation to recognize that and help these concepts thrive and give them opportunity and then in, just really invest in them. All right. All right. We'll be back after this break. Are you a Native American healthcare provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin an advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online masterclass in somatic archaeology uses the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach providing powerful modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 1st. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. This is The Menu on Native America Calling, our special feature on indigenous food. I'm your host and producer, Andy Murphy. And we're coming up to our segment about soup. Tell us about your favorite traditional native soup by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. Blue, just before the break, you were mentioning, um, uh, you know, for a big culinary institution like the James Beard Foundation to invest in native food. Uh, Go ahead and, and continue with that. for them because they really have been an ally and a support system for us, especially the ones working on the back end, trying to provide opportunity and revenue and all of these things for more Native chefs and entrepreneurs to succeed. So just wanted to show appreciation to them. All right. And uh, out of the four that have been nominated, uh, have you visited uh, any of them? And are you uh, maybe more familiar with one than the other? Well, I'm intimately familiar with Bow and Arrow um, just because they're in the Southwest. But also um, Shyla, one of the co-owners, is also MHA. So she's like my sister. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I'm always rooting for her and just love what she's created. 
I am excited to visit the other three. They are on my list, so I'm hoping to get there in the next couple of months. But, you know, congratulations to all. We And we really, we really want to support these restaurants. They're really great restaurants. So if anyone has opportunities, please do visit them. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I was uh, looking at their menus and, and their social media, and they look like they are, um, you know, pretty uh, on point with how they are uh, showcasing uh, indigenous food and local, um, you know, indigenous flavor. Uh, it's really creative how, you know, all of these dishes and all of these ingredients can be used in so many ways. Uh, but I want to go to a caller right now we have Gary in Española, New Mexico listening on KRDR. Uh, Gary, go ahead. Good morning. Uh, well, what could be better? Topics, food, and good knives. Uh, and I would like to ask a question um, of your first guest, uh, Nikki, about her opinion between carbon steel blades and stainless steel because i use both and i something i just love about carbon steel is the the color you know like the rainbow colors in the metal but i also just like the feel of it but there's a few things that for fine work like a little three inch kitchen knife i use for uh, uh slicing that is stainless uh, so that that's my question is if uh if she has an opinion on the different metals in blades? Oh, that's a great question. Thanks for asking. Um, I personally love the high carbon steel um, because of how it holds its edge. It does tend to rust um, a little bit. It's kind of uh, sensitive to like water like that. But um, if you take really good care of it, it will last forever. Um, there is a high carbon steel, about 13 inches, that my family has kept in our family for quite some time. It's probably our preferred knife. It does many different tasks, um, but it does require a little bit of upkeep. As far as stainless steel goes, that's where, like, the beauty of, you know, um, asking it to do maybe a little bit more tougher tasks um, and just really... I think depending on the shape um, will determine whether I prefer one over the other. But for sharpening purposes, high carbon steel all the way. Um, it, it'll it give you that scary, scary sharp edge. Um, so you need to be careful with it afterwards. But I, I don't know. I personally um, don't really like have uh, input on like which one you should buy over the other. Um, just whatever feels comfortable in your hand. Um, and then, like you were saying, there's different um, sizes of knives for different tasks. So uh, whatever you feel comfortable with, and um, as long as you're practicing uh, safe, um, you know, safety protocol, then you should be fine. All right. So um, I wonder when it becomes a sword, like after 13 inches? Or... <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. It's <laughs> a big knife. Yeah. Uh, um, I want to go over to uh, Joe Rocky in Philadelphia. He's a chef and culinary educator at Franklin Town Charter High School. He is Pamunky. Welcome to the menu, Joe. Andy, hi. Thanks for having me on today. 
Well, it's a perfect time to talk about soup. It is soup season. Uh, and uh, I want to ask you, what is your favorite soup? My favorite soup, it's hard to say, especially with being a chef. I tend to do things differently almost every single time. Uh, I would have to say probably any version of the Three Sisters type soup category is my favorite. Um, I do prefer soups that would definitely be classified as stews rather than soups. Something a little bit more heartier, a lot of different textures, a lot of different layers of different flavors. And how I like to say that people had to put a little bit more love and respect into. Um, I find cooking is such an imitation into people's souls. Like when I cook for people, I'm putting my soul on a plate for them. Um, and I think people can really taste those things when you really love food and really put a lot into food. So what is it about soup uh, where you know every native community has their own uh, recipe, has their own uh, you know set of traditional soups? Why, why do we have soup all over the place? Well, Andy, that's a great question. And I like the way you put that when you said every single tribe, because our tribal system, everybody tries to put us into this homogenous, like, these are people from North America, Central America, South America. They're all the same, and we're really not. We're so different, and our landscapes and our beliefs, even from one tribe to the next, were completely different. So when you look at particular diets, the quote-unquote Native American diet, our land is so vast, and we were really partners with our land um, that – if you're 50 miles from me, you should probably have a different soup than me because um, you're going to be eating what's there, what's grown, what type of year. Uh, so for culinary circles, we throw around a lot of terms like farm to table, nose to tail, hyper seasonality. Um, for Native Americans, that just wasn't a weird term. That's just how we lived our lives. So if I made a version of Three Sisters Soup today, and I made one a month from now, I'm probably making it different because I'm using the ingredients that are right outside my house. Um, I'll probably always have staples of things like dried corn, but the smaller things would change from sometimes day to day, sometimes week to week, week to week. Um, and each tribe was their own nation. Some had completely different sets of beliefs. Um, and they, like anybody else, if you you know, live in your house, you probably like food a certain way. Uh, people from the next town, they, they might like food a little bit differently. Um, but I think soup was probably maybe like <clears throat> once, you know, humans started cooking their food uh, after just putting food into the ashes or putting food on sticks. Uh, I think the very next thing was probably soup. So as humans, we've been eating soup forever. Um and soups for natives, I think, are so important that a lot of times uh, a lot of our sacred ideologies somehow revolve around food, um, somehow revolve around a soup. Um, and I think that's where it really hits home for most people that a steak is a great meal, but a good stew can touch your heart. Whether you're thinking about grandma, where you're thinking about a place you lived a certain time in your life, um, a good stew can change someone's day. If you're having a bad day and you put that stew in front of them and all of a sudden it transports them somewhere else. It right. has the power to completely change their day.
Now, ironically, <laughs> if you do it badly, it can go the complete opposite way. And the great day and you like you know put that soup that they're expecting and you didn't do it right and they're personally upset they probably want to fight you um, because you just ruined what they thought was going to be a great meal right right i, I did that with uh, a fish head soup like long time ago and i've never come back to it um but i i got a couple of response like a lot of responses about soup about native soup uh on social media and here's just a little list of uh what uh, everybody's eating milkweed soup uh medicine soup up in the great plains area uh seafood soup uh from the East Coast, uh, Pueblo bone stew, green corn soup, blueberry bison donnie, acorn soup, um, wild rice pho, uh, something called uh, a soup called hole, which is uh, fish head soup, uh, squirrel soup, Haudenosaunee uh, culture soup, uh, rabbit soup. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of uh, different native soups out there. And uh, some of them have some really, uh, you know, um, uh, ha- have stories behind them. Uh, Joe, what uh, kind of stories uh, are sometimes attached to these uh, different soups? Um, you know, that's a great question. And I think it can be answered a lot of different ways. Sometimes it can be a story related to a certain part of the world, um, or it could be a story related to you personally. Um, I'm actually looking at my screen right now because I knew I was going to mispronounce this, so I'm trying to do my best on it. Um, Panucky soup, which is a Cherokee, kind of like a pureed nut nut soup. Uh, I first became aware of it a couple years ago, and to me, even as a chef, I was like, oh, wait, that sounds weird. Let me look in this a little bit more, like, because uh, I, I didn't know how to take it. And it's basically a hickory nut soup, which have you ever had hickory nuts for me? I know that conjures up a lot of frustration because I was down on my reservation in Virginia uh, picking hickory nuts, and I'm like, how do I get them out of here? They are the most ridiculous things in the world to try to get those little tiny hickory nuts out. Um, And I'm like, who would want to make soup from this? But, oh, my God, hickory nuts taste so good. It's ridiculous. I'm never going to be able to look at that particular soup without thinking of that. And like, oh, I'm glad somebody else had to get these hickory nuts out. Um, but for other people, it could be maybe tied into something their particular family, their community, or their tribe had to go through. Um, maybe it's something that was used for religious cer- ceremonies. Um, maybe it was something that was used at a lot of times you'll see um, uh, j- just some based in Philadelphia. Um, St. Patrick's Day is huge here. Um, and just as an example, uh, around St. Patrick's Day, there's – um, <clears throat> ham and cabbage soup, um, corned beef and cabbage soup all over the place for mm-hmm. Irish festivals. The funny thing is if you go to Ireland, they don't eat that there. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the people that were here and they were going through a lot of the same struggles that Native Americans went through, um, not wanting to be employed, having a lot of racism against them, it's a sign for them of a time that they had to struggle, and this might have been all they had to eat. Now they're using that as something to reflect upon of what they went through and where they're at now. Um, and I see that in a lot of different Native American communities. Uh, one of the things I do is I kind of travel around trying to teach food. Um, and 
there's always a story. Um, no matter what I'm talking about, if I say like three sister soup and there's 50 people there, I guarantee you 40 of them want to tell me a story about three sister soup. Mm-hmm. Um, some way, shape or form it touched their lives. Maybe it was the first soup they ever learned how to make. Maybe it was the one that that great grandmother that they loved that they spent that summer at when they were 10, they ate it every single day. Um, what I think a lot of people don't realize about our soups is that they do change. They change throughout the season. They change throughout um, the region you're in. And here's a funny story. I'm going to um, change the wording up a little bit, but this has always made sense to me. Mm-hmm. So there was a lady in her tribe that was very well known for this particular soup she made. Um, everybody loved it. It was the best. She had two twin daughters. They both grew up, grew up next to her, one on the left, one on the right. Every few days making the same stew for either themselves or for somebody else in the, com- in the community. Fast forward in time, 50 years later, mom has passed on. Both daughters still do that stew, and the recipe is different. Because over time, they've put their own soul and their own life experience into that soup. And now it's still the same, but it's different. Um, so a lot of times, like say if you say three sister soup, depending on which tribe you're talking to, you may actually be talking about a different soup. They're all going to have the three sisters, but they're not all exactly the same. Right, right. Like I mentioned, uh, Wild Rice Pho. I mean, that one was a suggestion from uh, a, a chef, uh, a, a native chef friend. And um, acorn miso soup is something that uh, was also listed in this long list of soups here. I mean, we, you know, I think one thing um, folks uh, maybe need to understand about native food is that we all uh presently eat and taste around and our palates are very, very different. So, you know, some of these native uh, foods might have fusions in it. And uh, because, you know, we fell in love with pho, we fell in love with miso. And now that is part of our uh, story and part of our personal kitchen. Um, I want to thank you, Joe, for joining us. That is uh, the end of the show here. Unfortunately, we could probably talk about soup for hours uh, I also want to thank uh, Blue Adams for joining and Nikki uh, Sabetze. Join us tomorrow for a conversation about the life and legacy of author in Scott Momaday. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom branded apparel? A wide variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Happy New Year. Now is a great time to start new habits that will keep you healthy. Eating right, getting plenty of exercise, and enough sleep are key to a healthy lifestyle. Talk with your healthcare provider about changes you can make to let the new year be one of your best years. For more information, contact your Indian health care provider or visit healthcare.gov. A message from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Oh,
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.